0: in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 9. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney.
1: Daniel, chapter 4. Verse 35, it's on screen for you. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, God, what have you done? John Bunyan was drafted as a soldier in the Civil War. Let me have your attention in the Civil War in England, and he was sent to take part in the siege of Leicester. As he was about to begin sentry duty one night, another requested that they exchange responsibilities, and Bunyan agreed. That night, the other soldier was shot in the head and died. Bunyan was spared so that in the providence of God, he might minister through the word to generations to come. John Bunyan, as you know, wrote the greatest allegories of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress. William Kelper faced a great crisis. Tired of the struggle, he decided to take his own life. He took an overdose on some potent narcotics, but his suicide was a failed attempt. And then he tried to drown himself in the Thames River, but he was prevented from doing so. The next morning, he deliberately tried to impale himself on a knife, But the blade broke and he was only slightly injured. (laughs) You guys are so sick, you're (laughs) laughing. So sick. Then he tried to hang himself and almost succeeded. Someone found him unconscious and cut him down. In despair, he began reading Paul's letter to the Romans and received strength to believe that God loved him. He became one of the most popular poets of the 18th century he wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Christopher Columbus felt greatly disheartened and discouraged after many attempts to obtain financing for a trip to India. While on his way back to Italy, he stopped at a convent not far from Grenada, and he asked for a drink of water. The monk who gave him the water and heard his story was the man who intervened on his behalf with Queen Isabella. Out of that request for a glass of water came the money to equip the vessels that ultimately crossed the Atlantic. That request led to the discovery of America. John Calvin was also on his way to Italy when he experienced God's control of his path. In Italy, he hoped to find freedom from Roman Catholic oppression and leisure to continue his writing. The roads were closed because of the war between France and Italy, so he decided to make a detour through Geneva. There he met Will Farrell, uh, not Will Farrell, the actor, <laughs> but Will Farrell, who with fiery eloquence demanded that Calvin stay in Switzerland. Impressed with Farrell's earnestness, Calvin complied, and the cause of the Reformation owes much to his decision. One day, Abraham Lincoln was rummaging through a barrel of odd old books, and he came across a copy of Lord Blackstone's commentary on British Jewish prudence. This chance discovery awakened his interest in law and human rights. As a result, he ran for political office and eventually played a decisive role in the history of our country. George Whitfield was employed by his brother in the Bell Inn, but could not get along with his brother's wife. And so he gave up his job and went to Bristol. Then step by step, he went to Oxford, met with with the Wesleys, and developed a ministry that touched countless thousands of lives on both sides of the Atlantic. Whitfield was perhaps the greatest preacher of his time. Hmm. A shift change, suicide, overridden, a glass of water, a road detour, the effect of one book, dealing with a tough sister-in-law. All of these seem like natural events, but in actuality, it's God's sovereignty working behind the scenes. We call this providence. Or I like to say, God working supernaturally natural. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to see God's sovereignty and providence as the people are in search of a king. I've titled this sermon, Saul for King. 1 Samuel chapter 9, saints, we pick up in verse 1. If you're looking at verse 1, say amen. amen. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, the son of Bechoreth, the son of Apphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was saints? Saul. There was not a man handsome, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Let's stop right there and give me your attention. Remember, I gave you the outline for the entire book of First Samuel. 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7 is written about Samuel. 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 15 is written about Saul, the first king of Israel. And 1 Samuel chapters 16 through 31 is written about, anybody know? David. David, very good. Samuel, Saul, and David. If you've been with us in Samuel, you know the backdrop of the book, Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. It was a dark time in Israel. The spiritual condition was at an all-time low. The spiritual leaders were corrupt at an all-time high. God's people were disobeying his word and not listening to God, and since man wasn't listening to God, God didn't bother to speak. First Samuel chapter 3, if you care to look, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. This lays the groundwork for Ichabod. Ichabod means what? The glory of the Lord has departed. Chapter 8, the last time we were together, begins in a second section. Are you with me? And it's the turning point in Israel's history. Chapter 8, we meet Israel's new and first king, Saul. Up till chapter 8, Israel has been a theocracy. If you're taking notes, write that down. Israel has been a theocracy up till chapter 8. A theocracy is a people ruled by God. Now, in chapter 8, when you get to chapter 8, Israel moves from a theocracy to, uh, anybody know? A monarchy, very good. A monarchy is a nation ruled by a king. Chapter 8 is a sad time in Israel's history because in chapter 8, the people are rejecting the rulership of God and crying out for the rulership of man. The people don't want to be led by God anymore. They want a king like the other nations. And God said, fine, you want a king? I'll give you a king, and you'll never forget him. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. Samuel told the people, God said, chapter 8, verse 10, if you want human government, you must realize that he will be a taker and not a giver. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. He will take your sons and make them chariot runners and drivers. Look at verse 12. He will appoint a leadership order to plow the fields and work hard. He will take your daughters to perfumers and cooks and bakers in 13. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and good stuff. He will take a tenth of the grain, verse 15. He will take your male servants and your female servants and your young guys in verse 16. He will take a tenth of your sheep and they will be his servants in verse 17. God said the king you want is going to burden your family and your finances. And even after God told them, were you with me in chapter 8? By show of hands, were you with me in chapter 8? Then you know this. Even though God told them that they can expect and what they can expect from an earthly king, they still didn't listen to Samuel. They're choosing bondage over freedom. And that's where we left the saga the last time. Now in verse 1, You remember, I've told you in the past, a prophet is of no profit if he isn't being listened to. A prophet is of no profit if he isn't being listened to. God sent Samuel, a prophet, to tell them what the cost would be to have a king. But the people didn't listen to the prophet. They insisted, we want a king. We want a king. And God gave them what they wanted. Look at verse 1. It tells us Kish was a mighty man of wealth and substance. Kish has a son whose name is who, Saul. And he is a choice man. If you're taking notes, that word choice refers to his size. It refers to the fact that he's fit, in good shape, handsome, ripped, bulging biceps. He would be People Magazine's good-looking man alive. He was taller than any other people, tall, dark, and handsome, and rich. Movie star material, Brad Pitt. The Bible tells us he was the most good-looking man in Israel, verse 2. So the people are thinking, man, we got a king. He looks like a king. The name Saul, if you're taking notes, means ask of God. His name means ask of God. Israel was asking for a king. And Saul was the one asked of God. He's about 40 years old. Maybe some scholars say 30. He was about 30 or 40 years old about this time. When the people were introduced to Saul, they embraced him right away as a good choice. Just what they wanted. But listen, there's one thing missing. Listen, there's one thing missing in this description of Saul. Did you notice? Nothing is said of his relationship with the Lord. Nothing is said of his relationship with the Lord because there's nothing to say about his relationship with the Lord. Size and looks, tall, dark, and handsome, isn't everything. Did you know that? Have you ever heard the name Isaac Watts? You know who he is? Isaac Watts, I'll tell you. Isaac Watts is a writer of many great hymns. He was recognized as the father of hymnody. There's your word for the day, hymnody. Hymnody literally means a writer of hymns. Isaac Watts wrote 750 plus hymns. Isaac Watts was four feet, 10 inches tall, and he was sensitive about being short. He wrote one day, were I so tall to reach the poles or span the oceans with my hand I must be measured by my soul, for the mind is the standard of a man. In other words, you can be a big, strong, good-looking idiot. That's what I got from it. It's the heart of a man that matters most. Somebody say amen. Now listen, we're going to take these next sections in really big chunks, okay? So stay with me because we've got a lot to read. Look at verse 3. If you're looking at verse 3, I want you to say Amen. Now, the donkeys of Kish, I'm going to tell you early, we're talking about Providence, all right? Keep that in mind. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of my servants with you and arise and go and look. Underline, arise, go, look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha or Shalisha, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Shalem, and they were not there. And then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. And when they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servants who was with him, come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, look now. There is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass, so let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. And then in verse 7, are you looking at it? Then Saul said to his servants, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answers Saul, Again, and said, Look, I have here at one hand one at hand one fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Insert, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called what a seer. Well, then Saul said to his servant. Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hills of the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they, the women, answered them and said, yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. And as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up. For about this time, you will find him. And so they went up to the city. And as they were coming into the city, in verse 14, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up the high place. Stop right there, saints. Give me your attention. I want you to notice how God opens up. Listen, very important. I want you to notice how God opens up probably the most important chapter in the history of Israel. God opens a chapter by talking about lost donkeys. Interesting. Interesting. God is using lost donkeys to accomplish his will. God is using lost donkeys to supernaturally bring two people together. A king is going to be led to the throne. A prophet who's going to give him the news that he's the new king. Interesting. Seemingly chance events, lost donkeys, altered the course of history. Or even just three words. Arise. Go. Go. Look, three commands set in motion a series of events that leads to the anointing of Israel's first king. I think it's funny that Israel's first king is found while looking for a donkey. At the same time, this isn't all chance or coincidence. This is what we call providence. I told you on Sunday, didn't I? the sovereign savior. And I told you, I like to say the sovereign savior. The sovereign savior is always multi-purposeful. I told you Sunday that the sovereign savior is never doing just one thing in what he's doing. He's always doing thousands of things that we can't see. He has thousands of purposes in everything he does. I told you on Sunday that the sovereign savior is infinitely wise and everything he does relates to everything else he's doing. And in our story, God uses lost donkeys to guide Saul. God uses circumstances in our lives to guide us. That's why we as Christians do not believe. Are y'all listening? That's why we as Christians do not believe in happenstance. We do not believe in chance. I don't. I believe everything that happens to me is ordained and strategically arranged by God. How about you? God is, all, again, everything God does relates to everything else he's doing. Providence. You got to get this. Because if you don't get this, then you walk around and everything that happens, you go, oh, why that happen to me? Oh, man, I don't know why I got a flat tire. Well, how about if you got a flat tire because the guy is going to help you to change your tire, God wants you to tell him about him. He needs to hear the good news. How many times has something happened in your life? You think about it. I don't know. You think about it. How many times has something happened in your life and you don't really get it right then, but then later on you go, oh, that's why that happened. Or if I had not been there and if that had not happened and not been arranged like this or set up like this, then that wouldn't have happened and this wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't have met that person and this wouldn't have happened. God is all. That's how God works. And so for the Christian, that's how we rest. That's how we rest. We trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We lean not to our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, memory verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all of your ways, and he will do what? Direct your path. That's providence. God is always working for our good and his glory. Write it down. And look at verse 4. Saul and his servant come through the mountains of Ephraim, but they're looking for the donkey. They did not find them. Three times it says they did not find them. They did not find them because God did not want them to find them. This was probably getting frustrating for Saul, but God was working out his plan. Think about it. These donkeys could have gone anywhere, but they went exactly where God wanted them to go. They submitted to God. You know, we hear people talk about dumb animals, don't we? But these donkeys were smart. They were smart enough to submit to God. Are you? They were smart enough, yeah. Amen. They were smart enough to submit to God and do what God led them to do. God has a plan and a purpose for you right where you're at. God is always providentially working on your behalf. Are you glad about it? Always providentially working on your behalf. Anybody here from Providence, Rhode Island? Anybody from Providence, Rhode Island? Anybody? No, one person. Oh, I didn't see you. Oh, well, raise your hand higher, then I didn't see you. Okay, are you from Providence, Rhode Island? I didn't know that. Um, okay, Providence, Rhode Island. Then do you know this? Providence, Rhode Island, was the first settle was first settled in June 1636 by Roger Williams, and was one of the first cities established in the U.S. And one of the original 13 colonies. Roger Williams named the area in honor of God's merciful providence, which he believed was responsible for revealing such a haven for him and his fellow settlers. Interesting. Providence, Rhode Island. I told you in John's study, remember, you should learn the word providence. Providence, if you're taking notes, here's where you want to get the writing. Providence is not to be confused with good fortune, fate or luck. Providence is not to be confused with good fortune, faith or fate or luck. Good fortune is blind while God is all seeing. Fate is impersonal while God is a father. Luck is dumb while God can speak. There are no blind and personal forces at work in the affairs of Christians. Everything that happens is brought to you by the providential hand of God. The word providence, if you're taking notes, it means the supernatural arrangement of natural events. The supernatural arrangement of natural events. In other words, every day natural events are happening, but a supernatural hand arranges those natural events that are happening every day. That's called providence. Providence teaches God is continually involved in all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, causing them to act as they do. And thirdly, directs them to fulfill his purpose. So then providence includes God's work of sustaining his creation. It is God who is sustaining creation and not man. Can you say amen? There are four common errors as it relates to God and creation. Keep up with me. Deism teaches God created the world and then essentially abandoned it. Pantheism. Creation doesn't have a real distinct existence. It's part of God. That's what pantheism teaches four common errors as it relates to God and creation. Deism. Pantheism. Chance. Teaches randomness. Fate. Teaches impersonal determinism. None of these relate to God.
0: You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch,